Hi, this is Eric Gurna, President and CEO of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. I have no reason to Hey, podcast listeners, Eric Gurna here with a few quick comments before we start today's episode with Selma James. I was so excited to land the interview with Selma James, who is really a legendary activist and organizer. The trouble was that she is based in London, and Please Speak Freely does not yet have the budget to fly me to London to do an interview. So I conducted it over Skype. The quality of the Skype connection and recording was not what I hoped it would be. And though I did my best in editing to clean it up as much as possible for you, it's not up to my usual standards of recording quality. So I wanted to just apologize for that and uh, ask you to bear with me. I think it's worth it. Um, the quality is not too, too bad. And the conversation was really fascinating. One other quick order of business before we jump into the episode, and that is I want to ask for your help. Please Speak Freely has been slowly but surely growing its listenership. And I want to thank all of you who have spread the word, let others know, um, forwarded on the emails and, and tweets. Um, but really, I want to ask for your help in uh, getting the word out there. If you like the podcast, if you could go take a few minutes and go on iTunes and leave a review or rate it, that would be greatly appreciated. That helps a lot with the exposure we get on iTunes. Um, if you don't already follow me on Twitter, please do. My handle is at Eric Gurna, E-R-I-C-G-U-R-N-A. I don't tweet a whole lot these days. Um, but it would help me greatly if you followed me and could retweet the announcements that I make about new episodes of the podcast. And if you have other suggestions for how to get the podcast out there, um, or even for guests who you think would be good, please speak freely, um, interviewees. I would appreciate it. If you uh, reach out and let me know, you can, um, contact me on Twitter or you can email me at ericgurna at developmentwithoutlimits.org. Just want to get the word out there and, um, you know, grow the number of people who listen to Please Speak Freely. So thanks for all your support and enjoy my conversation with Selma James. Welcome to Please Speak Freely. I'm your host, Eric Gurna, and I'm here today with Selma James, writer, activist, and political organizer known for her work on women's rights and against racism, perhaps best known for the International Wages for Housework campaign launched in 1972. Her most recent book is Sex, Race, and Class, The Perspective of Winning, a selection of writings from 1952 to 2011. Welcome, Selma. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. And I will say that uh, I'm super happy to be able to talk to you because your work has really had a personal impact on me, and I can tell you a little bit about that if you like. But um, I, I'd love to hear. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. Um, and I'm also, I was a little bit extra excited and nervous because this is the first time that I've done a Please Speak Freely interview over Skype. So I'm used right. to being in person, and here we are. You're in London, and I'm uh, on the East Coast. Um, so, right. you know, I really agree. Uh, I really appreciate your flexibility, and uh, I hope I don't um, screw up the technical side too badly. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do fine. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for your confidence. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much uh, Please Speak Freely listeners know about your work, about international wages for housework, and about all of your other um, activism and activism and writing. Uh, your recent book covers more than 50 years of writing, so we can't possibly cover the breadth of it. But I wonder if you could uh, summarize a bit what has been your driving goals, what has been the, the heart and soul of your work as an activist and a writer? 
Well, you know, I don't think of myself as a writer because I do write, but I don't write because I need to write. I write because my organizing demands it of me. It's mm-hmm. a, an extension of what I want to see done and what, how I want to be with other people. And I'm anti-capitalist. I'm for a society based on who people are and what people need. So the society's needs and the individual needs are not clashing. Um, International Wages for Housework, which uh, for my sins I founded, is based on the fact that the reproduction of the human race has to be the priority for the society, and women are doing that work, even unwillingly very often, because we do it in poverty, we do it often in isolation, but if you begin with people you come to an entirely different kind of society, a different conception of who people are and what production, for example, what the economy is supposed to be for and supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about us. It's supposed to serve us, to help us. It's supposed to be an area where we are creative in building and uh, and working with others to build Um, an economy, a way of reproducing ourselves, a way of feeding ourselves, clothing ourselves, etc., on an international level. Because that's the other thing. This society is so nationalistic, and some people matter and some people don't. And Hmm. increasingly, fewer and fewer of us matter. Um, I heard a program two days ago on the BBC where they said, you know, the fuel poverty, by which they mean that people, that the prices of fuel are so high that people can't heat their homes. Mm -hmm. And they said 31,000 people last year died uh, of fuel poverty. And then the discussion continued as if something had not been said. That's 31,000 people in a society that's wealthy, full of wealth. You go to the center of London and you see it all. But the people who died are older people. And so they're not really as important as those who are young. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of racism, a kind of demeaning uh, of the human race, which is endemic in a society where people are not the center, the reproduction of the human race and of all life, in fact, and the planet are not central. What's central is this thing called the economy or sometimes called the market. And that's the God that we are told to worship even at the expense of our own survival. So that's the frame of my mind and is the frame of my struggle and the struggle of others that I work with. We want to change the world and at this moment in time, changing the world and saving the world are entirely identical. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't change it, we're going to let those genocidal uh, maniacs destroy it and destroy all life. You know, they're suicidally greedy, I think, is the way I think of them. You know, we have to look again at how we want the world to be and discuss among ourselves about what we want to change first or where we want to put the pressure first in order to build our power as a movement for change. The 
the major forces behind the current education reform agenda in the U.S., which consists mostly of pushing high-stakes testing, tests that are created by corporations yeah. that also sell the curriculum, and you know it's this whole sort of cycle um, perpetuated by both the um, current governmental administrations but also mostly driven by you know what Diane Ravitch refers to as the billionaire boys club which is the Koch brothers and uh, Bill Gates and others who are who have funded this movement that includes you know what many see as a movement towards privatization of schools through charter schools that includes um, a heavy emphasis on that which is easily measurable and uh, a heavy emphasis on um, uh, that schools and other educational programs should work towards um, preconceived standards. Um, it's not community-based. It's not um, focusing on creative development or collaboration or communication or compassion. It's highly competitive. And given that that whole, um, you know, what I think of as hyper-capitalist sort of uh, method of education has been led by these billionaires, I, I wonder where that ties in because th that side of it is the is the smiling face of compassion of the billionaires. That's the billionaires who say, we want to help the poor people lift themselves up out of poverty. And you Except by giving them money. That's the only thing they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you lift people out of poverty, give them the money, then they won't be poor anymore. Mm -hmm. That's the one solution they will not find. Anyway, carry on. It might help to, uh, to quote you to yourself a little bit. Um, this is from your, your recent book, Sex, Race, and Class, The Perspective of Winning, um, from, I believe this was an address to the Aristide Foundation in Haiti. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and you said, we, not only the young, but all of us, want education to help develop our minds. But the truth is that the aim of secondary schools and universities for working class children is rarely that. It is usually to enable them to rise out of their class, leaving behind those who couldn't afford education or who had talents which didn't flourish in schools. It's this notion that, um, you know, as if you want to, um, quote unquote, help poor people, the best way to do it is to help selected poor people figure out some way that they cannot be poor anymore, but without addressing the actual condition of poverty. That's right. And, with you know, you let some escape, and that shows that the society is good. And it's a fantasy, and also it's a form of corruption because you take the kids who make it in the school environment and you turn them against the others and hmm. you prove that the society is good by isolating them from their own communities and putting them often as managers and teachers of those who didn't make it and make it to what? What is it so that's so wonderful about what they offer us it is the management of others. And do we want to be managers? Do we not want to be creative people with our community and indeed with other communities? You know, a long time ago, I heard that Native American children were trained to see for a mile with the naked eye. And I said, I want to do that. Huh. I want to be able to see. 
And then as I grew older, I saw that in various societies, children had all kinds of talents and skills. And I said, you know, it seems to me that education should be a, a collection of all the um, all the skills that children everywhere have. And it's not only your mind that develops, but your body and your capacity to communicate. For example, I've seen rich children of six and seven years old who speak a number of languages Mm -hmm. because they've traveled with their parents. I would like to have done that. I would like my grandchildren to do that. I think that children should travel. I think all of us should travel, not all the time, but sometimes go and see the way other people are living and communicate with them and learn to see as they see. And uh, I think that the purpose of education now must be to end poverty. I think we have to work out what is standing in the way, certainly not a lack of resources. There's enough food, for example, in the world to feed everyone, except that we don't have the money to buy it most of the time. Mm -hmm. We have to change that. And we who have some access to literacy and other forms of education uh, must be actively uh, involved in changing so that Our education is useful to our communities rather than a weapon against that community. You talk about putting caring at the center of society. That's right. Yes, I do. Yes. Can you say what what you – it's such a – to me, it's such a compelling um, notion, not only thinking about what you described about the the reproduction of the human race being the the center of our existence rather than – the market, but also in terms of uh, the caring professions, and I and I don't know exactly how to define that, but the the work that is already being paid that is that is about caring for others. Well, first of all, the mother is the central person in the society in many crucial respects. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that women are at a disadvantage. It means that what women contribute to the society is, first of all, biological, not only making children, but breastfeeding, which is absolutely crucial to the health of the whole community. I mean, we'd be so much healthier if we were all breastfed. And women need time to do that, and they need an income to be able to do that and to make a real connection with their children. But men should not be out at work all the hours that there are because they have to find out about caring for their own children, find out who their children are and how they would like to relate to them. You know, there's such a problem with women and men. They lead such separate lives even today because while women are out at the workplace when they get at home they fall in often to the patterns of you know of a hundred years ago where they are doing all the caring work they are doing all the housework which is part of the caring work and uh, men are not accountable in the same way and therefore are encouraged to think of themselves as a priority rather than think of others as Mm. a priority. And I think thinking of others as a priority is part of a civilizing influence 
that women more than men uh, are subject to. And mm -hmm. I think we all should be subject to that. And I think we would get on very much better. I think we're overworked. They just announced in England that they want to raise the age uh, of pensions so mm -hmm. that we won't, we'll work till we're 70. Hmm. Excuse me. They say the reason is we're living longer. Well, we're not living longer to work. We're living longer to have fun. Hmm. We, live, we, should, we should stop work very much less. We should have a shorter work week. What's all this business of technology? Is it only to build um, robots uh, for killing? What about cutting the work that we have to do and stop making stuff we don't need and really don't want except as a substitute for the caring that we're not getting mm. and that we're not giving. Mm. A society that is based on life and the enhancement of life is a caring society where the care of life, human and other, you know, is central to how we structure our lives and how we think about what we're entitled to also in terms of we want the time to develop ourselves, our relationships, our information, our communication with each other. And, you know, there's a way in which when you're not thinking of that, or rather, when you are told not to think about that, when mm -hmm. you are told to think about working, you kind of steal time which belongs to you rather than feeling that your time really belongs to you. Mm -hmm. And you know your time happens to be your life. That's it. There's nothing else that makes out your life except the time that you have, you know, to be on this planet. I think that... It's all one thing in terms of the, the respect for life, the respect for the individual, the respect for all who are there. You know, young people, elderly people, people in other countries. I feel that our education cuts us away from that perspective mm -hmm. and we begin to think as machines that have to fit in to the, to the productive process. And where do uh, educators, t teachers, and social workers, and others who are um, inv involved in paid professional work that is about caring for others, um, where where do they sort of fit in to that vision? You know, it's been very difficult for those who are paid carers. There are, first of all, carers who are very low paid, mm -hmm. who take care of elderly people or sick people and who are not interested in their work because they are overworked and also because they are underpaid, which shows that people do not respect either them or the people they care for. Right. And then there are the professionals and the professionals have many of them have been deeply corrupted by the the sliver of state power which their position gives them so that we as a network of women have been fighting social workers who want to take children away from poor women instead of finding a house for them to live in 
They say you're homeless, therefore we'll take your children. How dare they? It's really difficult when we have to fight the professional carer because she thinks like her management. She thinks like disciplining us. She doesn't respect us. She's not there to help us. She's there to manage us. And she's there to be punitive very often. The same thing is true with teachers. I've known many teachers who are deeply dedicated to kids and really love the process of helping the young mind to broaden and to learn more. But teachers often have become uncaring and feel that children are, you know, are the enemy. We've had fights in London about uh, police in the schools and teachers sometimes have said, well, they need to be in the school because they need to discipline the children. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. If you need to discipline the children, then you don't know how to teach. Mm. Or you are not being allowed to teach as you should, in which case your fight is for the children, not against them. Mm -hmm. You have to fight for their right to have the best of you. And it's, we've got a long way from that. We have to find our way. The professionals have to find their way back to caring. There have always been some who've never ceased to care, but that has not been the ethos that has been dominant, and we have to get back to that. And we will only get back to that when the kids make it clear that we'll not have teachers who don't care about them. They will not have teachers who are racist. They will not have teachers who think that because they're poor, they're a lower form of life. You know, it, it, we have really, there's been such a mess in every department of international life that, as I say, we have to start again. And we start again with a movement against the injustice that we're surrounded with. What you just described around um, how difficult it is to have to fight against the carers is it really strikes a chord for me because there's a I feel that, that there's a generation of, of young teachers, at least in the States, who have grown up with and have been educated with the ethos that um, competition is the way to get yes. performance and, and achievement is all that matters. And the only thing that matters is um, that which is easily measurable. And yes. they've I've met people who are really um, kind and well-meaning and do care about kids and believe in that because it's it's the it's the yarn that they've been told you know um and it's they don't see much of an alternative to it and so no. they they actually think that um you know the best way to help the kids in their class is to have this very competitive um behaviorist approach yes. especially with poor children yes um, and it but it's so it's so hard for me because I don't want to demonize these, especially these very young educators who, who come in with this bright energy and spirit and mean so well. And, and I wonder, like, how do we fight that injustice without, you know, really fighting them? Well, I think, you know, we always have to begin with the few who are doing some good stuff mm -hmm. and advertise it and make it visible to others and invite others to become familiar with it. Can I just tell you a little story that was very impressive to me? 
In the 1960s, there was a teacher's strike, which I didn't support, in New York City, where white teachers who were teaching in the black ghetto wanted extra money for, for teaching there. And some white teachers would not tolerate that kind of racism and stayed on the job. And a lot of things happened because they were not under the discipline of the school system, that racist school system during that period, during the period of the strike. And one story that came to me, which I really like, was that one of the teachers read the first chapter of Malcolm X's autobiography to the kids, and they were absolutely gobsmacked. They just loved it. And they said, go on and go to the next chapter. He said, no, I won't do that. You have to learn how to read mm. if you want the next chapter. And they all learned to read mm. because they wanted the next chapter. And I think, you know, I'm sure it worked out a little differently from the way I've described it. But kids are dying to know what they want to know about their own lives and then about other things. And you have to be guided by what people need, not by what you want to impose on them. And I think that kind of history of anti-racism among teachers is terribly important for teachers today to know about because the whole history of that struggle against racist education and against pulling children from the working class out of the working class, you know, to become the managers of the future, all of that struggle needs to be disseminated and the young teachers and social workers and sociologists and some of the academics too can learn a bit in spite of the fact that they're very hidebound, most of them. Uh, and their own history will help them to determine the direction in which they want to go. One of the things that's happened with this terrible rule of the market precisely has been that the struggle, the, all the struggles that we've been involved in that have been tremendous and tremendous learning experiences because that's where you really get education is among your, your fellow human beings. They tell you about, you know, their lives and that's already an enhancement of your own. You know, that, that str those struggles have been hidden from us and we have to rediscover them and broadcast them all about. And I think that that's a function in a way that part of that I've been asked to perform because I remember those things because I lived through it. Mm -hmm. You know, people want to know how it was when they weren't there and what were we able to accomplish? And the most important question, how? Mm -hmm. That's what people want to know. They want to know how to build a movement which will not be corrupted again by ambitious leaders. And what we're trying to do in the network of organizations that I'm part of is precisely to practice that and make it accessible to others and point to the various ways in which people everywhere are struggling for survival and really for community. And 
base ourselves on that, respect that, use that as your point of reference for what you want to accomplish and break down the terrible racist divisions in the way that we organize because and I mean racist in the broadest sense of thinking that anybody wants net less, needs less or deserves less than you. Mm. And you know, begin to see that other people are finding ways to survive, are finding ways to resist and learn from that and disseminate that and show that to others and come together on that basis for particular or more general injustices that you want to change, overthrow. And in the course of organizing, you will get a tremendous education. Mm -hmm. You will learn about people. You will learn about how many people with many weaknesses also have strengths. And when they come together, it's the strengths that emerge. It's the strengths that predominate. And that's part of how you win. And then, of course, the weaknesses recede somewhat. You know, every victory is a great a stepping stone to the next. Um, and people all over the world are struggling to survive, but we have to find out what's standing in their way. You know, I'm very engaged with Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, and I met President Aristide, who is a priest. He was a priest. Uh, he was a, th a theologian. You know, liberation theology was very strong in the 60s. And he said, I'm here to work with the people. And he was, and he still is. And it's amazing that he is there in his finally back. And the Americans have organized uh, through the United Nations an occupation of the Haitians. And they are extraordinary, those Haitian people. They overthrew slavery in 1804, and you feel that the spirit and the energy and the determination and the goodwill that overthrew slavery in 1804 is still among them. You're mm. elevated when you're with those people. You feel like, yes, we can. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, yes, we can. Not, that's not Obama's, that's ours. Yeah. Uh, because, yes, we have in Haiti, mm -hmm. and yes, we can everywhere. So you have to base yourselves, it seems to me, on signs of life, on signs of positing the, the centrality of life, and on collectivity, people coming together, not to lose your individuality, but to find it. You, you know, there's a way in which they told us that if we're together, we lose our identity. Mm -hmm. No, it's not necessarily so. You can find your identity. You can find your power in conjunction with and with the help of others. I, 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 I live this, and it's a good way to live. I recommend it. <laughs> there was something you said earlier which um, really touched me and it really was one of the reasons that I so wanted to talk to you and that was the transformational power of as as a man um changing my own priorities uh yes. and and I, I speak from this personally because this is something that I've m my family and I have gone through in the past 
couple of years, which is rearranging how we live so that uh, I could care for our children equally. I didn't realize until we really got into it how, what a transformation that would have on me personally. And I have to admit that when I heard when when Elia quoted you to me and said something about the civilizing nature of caring work yes. in that way, I it I bristled at it because I felt like it was it implied that I needed I was somehow uncivilized and that I needed somehow to be civilized. And uh and now I feel like I I get that in a deeper way because I feel like it's changing me and I didn't know how it was changing me until you said it a few minutes ago that you said um, changing the priority from being, I think you said something about from being, you know, more about me and, and, and shifting so that my priorities are more about other people. And um, I didn't know how much I needed that shift or how much that shift was possible until I'm actually going through this. And this is a huge thing for me personally, but as I go out in the world, um, it's, it's highly unusual for me to be the one taking them to school and picking them up at school. Just today, I stopped at the post office and I went in and to mail some things. And the guy behind the post office said, oh, are you babysitting today? And I still haven't come up with the way I want to respond to that because I'm asked that all the time um, when I'm, I'm out just doing things with my son. Because um, I'm not babysitting. He's my child. My wife never got asked that, ever got asked no. if she was babysitting. What would it take to shift our societies or our cultures in a way that would allow men to be able to care for children more than we do? Well, it will take a revolution, and that revolution will take many forms. And uh, I, I think that we have the power to do that, but we have to organize for it. It will take a transformation of the priorities of the society so that you're not wasting your time taking care of children. You are enhancing your relationship with those children and understanding more about life and understanding more about your relationships with everybody. And maybe there are all kinds of ways when many fathers are doing what you are doing, all kinds of ways in which to organize your own work and prioritize differently from now. You know, we don't know what it's like to be free because we've never experienced it, but we'd like to. And there's no way that we can do that without transforming everything in society and standing up and be counted every minute of the day. And it's really good for the kids to be to have parents like that, I think. In wrapping up, is there is there anything that people can do if people are, are excited about these ideas and they want to at least take a first step? Is there anything that they can do um, to, to get involved? Uh, sure. You know, our slogan is invest in caring, not killing, because we want military budgets um, for the caring. And we have a petition in the UK which says, a living wage for mothers and other carers. In the U.S., there is also a petition um, for two bills that are before Congress on women and men, whoever is the carer, having money for at least the first three years of a child's life so that people do not have to go out to work when the priority is caring for the young child. It's about the return of welfare, 
about the return of the carer, and that means the woman and the man, and hopefully both together. Great. Well, I will be. I will certainly be signing it myself, and we'll be sure to put the the link up on the website. And uh, Selma James, thank you so much for taking the time to be on. Please speak freely. It's been my pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed being with you, and maybe you'll ask me back. I would love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Whoa.